What is up? Welcome back to Stacking Slabs, your hobby content alternative. I am your host, Brett McGrath. And it's Friday. If you're listening to this on launch day and you know I'm fired up, I got reoccurring guest, my man, Chris McGill from Card Ladder, co-host of the crossover on the program, exploring a really fun and interesting topic. We're talking about the 97 PMG Jerry Rice green sale and why that stands out and why that's significant. So much of what we talk about when it comes to these auctions, selling is the same cards over and over again. And no, the sky is not falling in the hobby. There are plenty of pockets where some badass cards are being sold and purchased by collectors. So we're going to explore that, talk a little bit about that sale along with some other stuff. If you like what I'm doing over here, follow, subscribe, all the buttons. You already know the drill. Most importantly, tell a damn friend about the Stacking Slabs podcast. Without further ado, let's kick into the conversation. What is up, everyone? Welcome back to Stacking Slabs. It is the season to bring back Mr. Hoge himself. It has been a while, so I figured there was a couple things regarding auctions, some sales going on, and just some conversation that we can have on how our hobbies reacting to some of these things. And I figured bring Chris back on, chop it up. He's in a new city. He's going to Mavs games every night. Um, I also, I've been listening to the crossover. Sounds like you guys are maybe a converted hockey house at this point too, going to some stars games. So welcome back to the show. How are you doing? How is Dallas? Well, yeah, we are a hockey house. We did end up getting Dallas Stars season tickets. So, hey, I'll say this too. Hockey is is a really great sport to take in live. It's fun when they blow that goal horn. It's just there's nothing quite like it, I must admit. Yeah, so I feel like the percentage of people who are like hardcore hockey, uh, people who listen to this show, but we never talk about hockey are just like sitting there <laughs> being like, yeah, duh, like hockey rules. And so we're, we're just, you're just like, which I think is in a way, like, I'm sure based on, I don't know if you all will get into this, but like, I'm sure based on going to the games, connecting with sports, there might be some collecting around the way you'll start Mm -hmm. to meet collectors and get ingrained with the hockey collecting card community, perhaps. And there's always, no matter what we're collecting, there's an entry point and you're a beginner at some level and you meet people and you can learn from them. I've only watched three full hockey games in my life and they're then they all happen last two weeks so hockey is a gigantic puzzle that i have like one piece to and i still need to find the ten thousand other pieces and put the puzzle together before you know i would start looking at like collecting hockey and figuring out how the history and the stats and the legacies of the players and the sports line up but I can say that I definitely enjoy going to the games. It's it's a really nice uh, in-person fan experience. The hockey game is. So I gotta ask you. We're gonna we're gonna hit on uh, like the kind of the the launch off point of this conversation is like we're gonna hit on the Jerry Rice Green PMG sale of last week and just why I think that sale was significant and why it matters. Before I do that. All alongside of that, there was a lot of rumor, innuendo, speculation, investigators uh, who saw that the Luca uh, Logoman, <laughs> one of one, uh, might be coming up for auction. Which the, I mean, we could, if you maybe, I guess, a place to start if people haven't been following along, that co- maybe brief the the audience on like 
that card, the private sale that happened, and then get into like what this card potentially means or could do or what your theory is. I know you're a big Luca collector. Is this something you'll be coming, going after or sitting back on the sidelines? Anything related to that card? You're right by American Airlines Arena, right? Stones throw. You're going to all the Mavs games. So I figured I got to hit this topic before we move on to the Jerry Rice. Yeah, well, this is one of the few sports cards, maybe the only sports card that Luca has ever commented on, uh, being that he was asked a question about it in a in a press conference. And, you know, so, yeah, it is cool. Like, uh, there's there's a nice different level of um, Luca Mavs sports card triangle here going on with this card. But, you know, brief history of the card, uh, it, it came on the public's radar when shine 150 posted that he owned the card and by the way he also has luca's immaculate uh logo man one of one uh and still has it which you know is an absolutely stunning card uh you know if you ever just want to browse a top shelf collection of modern players and some of the best hand-picked cards like I don't know, Zion Williamson's Prism Black rookie, Lamar Jackson's Prism Black Finite rookie, Luca's Immaculate Logo Man one of one, Trey Young's, you know, Black Prism one of one. I mean, just really, it's about as good as it gets. This guy's page is the page to do it on. And that's just modern. He also has, you know, a PSA 10 triple Logo Man exquisite of LeBron, Kobe, and Jordan. So, but I'm, I'm probably not telling anybody anything new. But anyway, so this card shows up on his, on his page a few years ago. It ends up getting sold to uh, Nick Fiorella, also known on Instagram as 72Woot72, I think. And it's a high-profile sale. It's reported by TMZ, by Yahoo Sports, by ESPN, uh, by Bleacher Report, and all their online outlets. And it also made it to an ESPN segment. And then... As I mentioned, Luca actually got asked about the sale in a press conference. The reported price was $4.6 million. And we are tracking that card in Card Letter's private sales history. But our source of information on the price paid is simply credited to TMZ, ESPN, Yahoo, and Bleacher Report. And I think CBS too. So we use their reporting as the indicator of the price, we have no special knowledge or spe- or extra evidence of the price paid. We're only referring to the public reporting that happened to that price. And I know that there is skepticism surrounding that price. So that's another thing worth noting here too, is that the $4.6 million price has always raised eyebrows um, and, as a private deal. Uh, around the time that the Luca Logoman deal happened, the Patrick Mahomes National Treasure Shield one of one also sold. That sold at the 2021 National for $4.3 million. So there sort of was a, a level setting going on for, you know, arguably the best card of each of these players going for $4 million plus in 2021. Well, you know, markets have corrected, times have changed, and now we're, you know, in Q4 of 2022. And it's a different market, a different ball game. And it looks like, although it hasn't officially been confirmed, that this Luca Logoman NT autograph one of one rookie, you know, 
top two look Luca card, I think, indisputably, is coming to auction in the PWCC Premier Auction for the month of November. And that's kind of where we're at on that card now. Very important card in terms of modern card collecting, you know, ultra ultra modern card collecting. It's it's one of the most important pieces you'll see. And I think I've got a pretty good hunch of who's going to buy it. <laughs> oh, do you want to share that hunch or do you just want to keep that in the vault? No pun intended or pun intended. <laughs> no, I think we can talk about it. And, and it's worth like other buyers being aware of that, of this. Like, obviously my very first thought when, because the way this information was obtained was PWCC's Vimeo account, which is supposed, you know, probably supposed to be private, uh, posted a video, one of their video recaps of the card, which suggested that this card is going to come to auction. And uh, so, you know, the, the word started spreading. And the first thought that came to my mind when I learned about it was, you know, how can I make this happen for Christine and myself for our collection? But, you know, that's that's a card that's in an echelon of collector that's above us. And, you know, you have to just accept that and deal with it. You know, and I think Josh had a nice take on that when he kind of told me he was like, that isn't it better that way? You know, don't you kind of want there to be levels to this? And I was like, yeah, I, I do agree with that. I, I am glad that there are that you know, levels are good and not being on the highest level is completely fine. So, you know, my first thought was, hey, I want this card badly. The second thought was, but, you know, it, I'm not going to be able to get it because it's just too high level of a card. Then my third thought was, oh, and I think I know who is going to get it. You know, so there is a, a fund that owns the Curry equivalent to this card. So the 2009 National Treasures Logo Man Autograph Rookie Curry. And the fund owns the 2013 National Treasures Logo Man Autograph Giannis. So you've got the two top tier NT logo mans, why not put number three in with those two, which would be Luca. So I, I would be very surprised if this card ended up anywhere else, but in that fund and keeping that information in mind, it's like, you know, what's and the fund is alt, it's alt's fund. And it's like, what's their mega bid going to be? Cause that's one hell of a mega bid that it's almost a, a rigged game. You know, how can one collector go to toe to toe against a fund and a company that, you know, has raised hundreds of millions of dollars? I just think it's going to be tough. <laughs> it's going to be tough to see that card go anywhere else. So typically we don't uh, get into rumor and innuendo and speculation on the Stacking Slabs podcast, but you know what? We're going to throw that out and we're going to get into it a little bit. I, I am a. Uh, I'm curious because I know everyone out there listening, you, you said a pretty monster price that the card originally sold for. Mm-hmm. It, based on the current climate, current state, does the sale of this card, let's say if all the fun goes after it, does it come even anywhere close to the original sale price? Uh, is it is it just going to be kind of like what we're seeing across the board, although this is like top tier we're seeing it you know in almost every segment card bought you know a year two years ago selling for you know half or a quarter of what the seller originally or the buyer originally bought it for like is this do you anticipate one of those or do you think that there's going to be enough juice on this card that it could reach that original sale price like what's what's your speculation there great question so i wonder about this 
was this card privately shopped first? And were people given an opportunity to make private offers? And if so, did the private offers just come in way shy of what the seller was hoping to get? And then they decided to take it to auction. Did that happen? Because if so, I would say that's a bearish indicator for the price of this card. But on the other hand, did they decide, hey, we know there's going to be several, you know, probably sharks or whales trying to go after this card. Let's throw some chum in the water and let them duke it out and see if, you know, let's see how high they'll end up bidding this card. And then that's a very different world that. You know, and I was never, not that I'm somebody who should be made aware of it, but I was never made aware that this card was going to become available. It just kind of, oh, out of the blue, here it's coming to auction. So I think that's going to play a big factor in the price is what type of energy and activity is coming towards this card. Were people given a chance to buy it privately and rebuffed? You know, is, are they going to, you know, be upset about that? Like, are they going to want to still participate in this auction? You know, I just, I do find it really interesting that this card didn't move privately. You know, a card of this magnitude, it's, it's just so rare that you would see it publicly surface twice in a, in a deal. Like the first one was a private deal, but now, you know, we're seeing it have a, make a big public splash for a second time, this time coming to auction. You know, it's actually, it's, it's pretty special to see a card of this magnitude come up for sale. And, you know, unlike the LeBron triple logo, man, you know, for example, from flawless, which like was sold shortly after being pulled, you know, this, this isn't a scenario like that where some guy got, it got the hit of a lifetime and a break and then said, I'm going to cash in. This is a card that's been in circulation for years and years. And most times cards like this, they get locked away uh, after the first or the second transaction. And it's almost always done privately. So it's it's a pretty big surprise and, and and a fun hobby story that this card looks like it is going to come to auction. Or if you're a kid out there pulling one on one Mac Jones cards, fleecing the hobby for a hundred k and saying "see you later, everyone." That's a great point. So my predict, my ultimate prediction though is that if Alt doesn't win this card, it's going to be a thirteen year old <laughs> who saved up his uh, his his money shoveling driveways over the last few winters and it's going to make a strong push. So we've talked about this, Luca, we're going to talk about the Jerry Rice, but I think something you said was very insightful. And I maybe to touch on that, this topic before go a little deeper, before we get into the Jerry Rice card, you said, you know, there are different levels to this hobby. And I think so much of the news and what we get at us is talking to us from this top level. Like we get these auction recaps and reports. It's all these, you know, Fleer Jordan, Brady Content, it's all the same cards over and over again. And not only do they become boring for, for us, just the, you know, the, the working man's collector, but uh, it's, it's the, the price of these cards are going down. And it's just like these cards, like, don't, they don't even interest me. And uh, the other thing about it is, is like, this is what we're getting shoved down our throat constantly. So I don't know, like, while the Fleer Jordan PSA 10 at 180K or whatever it's selling for might be a certain level of people. Some people don't have interest to that. And so then it causes like this big fragmentation and people start to bicker. So I don't know, like, uh, wh why do you think like hobby businesses or just a hobby in general, like it's always about these cards that are like 100K and above when it's only a small percentage of people who are actual buyers for the that card. Don't you think that's 
in a way, like, I know I see it all the time. I'm just like, I don't not, I don't give a shit about this stuff. Like, why is it continually in my face? Like maybe talk about that dynamic a little bit because the large majority of people that are collecting are out there hunting for their players at the APC, like shaking trees, that sort of thing. And like a majority of the stuff that's put in our face is just irrelevant and doesn't make any sense. But the hobbies thinks that the, these are the stories that, that we want to hear and see regularly. Yeah, man, there's, that's, that's a really big, tough question. A deep question. One one thing that comes to mind is that the reason why cards like the 86 Fleer Jordan, the 96 Chrome Kobe, the 2000 Bowman Brady, one of the reasons why those cards are focused on is that, well, I'll give two reasons. The first one is that, you know, these cards are the crossover cards. So like if I'm a baseball collector, who doesn't really follow basketball, but I want one basketball card in my collection. I usually reach for like one of those three. I usually reach for the the Jordan. And that's something that makes that Jordan, that 86 Fleer Jordan. So, you know, universal is that it's the card. That's the shorthand for basketball card. Like when you say basketball card, that's the card that's generally going to come to mind. Uh, so I think that's part of the reason why it's just like, even if you know nothing about basketball cards, you know about that card. And to that card's credit, you know, it is as liquid as liquid gets. I've owned several copies of that card over the years. You know, if you ever need to sell that card at market price, I mean, it will be taken off your hands on eBay in 60 minutes or less. <laughs> or at least that's been my experience. So that that's just a, a really, just a, and a very unique card for that reason because it's it's the shorthand for basketball card. Can I ask um, you a personal question on that card? Yeah, yeah well, sure. Uh, I, I know, obviously, like you've got your PCs and Jordan's kind of what got you back into the hobby. And what is it a for you personally in your collecting? What is it about that card that you haven't hung on to it and you've got rid of it? Talk talk a little bit about just you, the collector, and that card, and why there lacks a connection. Yeah, well. This is narratives can be very uh, powerful and I don't want to put a bad narrative on this card because I think it's super important to the hobby. But, you know, the thing, one of the biggest turnoffs about that card to me was that I had it uh, maybe about four years ago and I showed it to my uncle who's a Chicago sports fan. I said, Hey, isn't this cool? This is Michael Jordan's rookie card. And he turned it over and he's like, 1986 he's like jordan came in the league in 84 and i was like oh you know this is weird this is like the the it's hard for me to tell a story about this card on the level that i think it should be told you know like hey this is michael jordan's iconic rookie card but like i have to get a few paragraphs deep with somebody to explain what it is and that that annoyed me and you know, but that's that's fine. You know, the, the flip side to that is, well, actually, that's cool because this is a way to say, well, actually, no, like that. This is a part of the history of the hobby. There, there wasn't NBA license pack issued, nationally distributed products during his rookie year. There was something called the Star Rookie, which you know was distributed to dealers, and you know was was wasn't ran- the cards weren't randomly collated. But, you know, but, you know, so it's actually cool. It's a way to talk about the history of the industry and collecting and stuff. So there is that side to it too. But for a rookie card of Michael Jordan, 
I want a crisper story to tell about the cards like that. That that moment has always resonated with me. <laughs> Just for better or worse, that moment always stuck with me. And then the other thing about it is that uh, you know it doesn't appeal to the collector in me when the card can be had in any grade minus BGS ten, but the card can be had in any other grade at any time at your whim. So if you ever wanted a PSA 10, you can just go get one and you can get it for market price. And so same is true for a BGS 9.5 or a BGS 9 PSA 9. I guess that's not true for the SGC 10 pristine either. So the BGS 10, of which there's six, I believe there's one SGC 10 gold label. Those are special uh, because you can't just go get one whenever you want. But for the other ones, they're they're just out there. And there's some people who love that. You know, they love the availability. They love the fact that the market price is constantly proven. It's constantly known. The, the card is incredibly liquid. It's 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 the entry level card for anybody, you know, taking a, a step into basketball cards, which is like that's a big part of why this card has such appeal and why it's so focused on as well is like. You know, if you've only been the let's imagine you've only been the hobby for three months, a PSA 10 of that card feels really rare, you know, because there's there's none on eBay right now. And you know, one came, you know, maybe to PWCC and two to Golden and like one to Heritage. And that's all you see. You're like, oh man, this card feels really rare because I've only been in the hobby for three months. But if you've been in the hobby for three years and you've seen two to three copies sell every month for 36 straight months. And, you know, now you've seen like a hundred move around. It doesn't feel as rare. And I think that's part of the story of the price arc of this card that isn't bold enough is that it was completely logical for people to really desire and love that card when they were new because it felt more scarce and more unobtainable. But then after they were in the hobby for three months and six months, then a year, then two years, Fast forward to today, you know, the, the people, especially the pandemic crowd who came in and fast forward to today, and now the card doesn't feel rare. It feels like it's something that's available, that's, that, that's there. And whether you're an investor or a flipper or a dealer or a collector, it, no matter which one of those you are, rarity is super important. You, you can just sort of intuitively, instinctively know that the cards that you really want are the ones that are really tough to get and that you can't just go buy. At your leisure. A lot there. Man, yeah. Again, like curiosity for me by the historical significance of the, the Flair Jordan um, can't be understated, but I think this kind of segues into just rarity, scarcity, uh, collecting desire. And that to me was on full display with the sale of the Jerry Rice Green PMG. Uh, you want to talk about uh rarity scarcity you know 15 copies of this card ever since i had back been back in the hobby i have not seen this card available uh you have seen uh, the football side of pmg not gain kind of the popularity and it hasn't been quite the attraction as you know its basketball counterpart however it, there has been some momentum there and so when i think there's been we were chatting a little bit about this before i hit record there's there's always these auction recaps and I, it used to be something I really enjoyed. And now I don't really enjoy them anymore because it's just the same kind of thing, commentary over the same cards. And it's most of the time negative and people getting bickering matches. And I'm like, why am I looking at this stuff? 
But when I was just looking at the, the results of the last premiere auction, that, that card stuck out to me. And I said, damn, like 150 K for this card. Like that sale to me, based on what I collect and like makes a lot of sense when a lot of stuff in the hobby doesn't make a lot of sense. And then I look on my Instagram feed the next morning and fifth pound sports card says, Hey, everybody, I bought this card. And as a matter of fact, look at this next to my TO. Look at this next to my Steve Young PMG. And to me, it was like, we got all of these bickering, all of this complaining going on all the time. And I was just like, that's freaking collecting. Like this dude said, I don't care. Like, I don't care what the price is. I'm getting this card because look, it fits and it connects and it's continuity. And to me, like there's such a powerful story there that I just wanted to spend some time and be like, hey man, Chris, did you see that too? Is that cool to you? Like talk a little bit about like that card, that sale, like that life cycle of it being sold the next day, it being posted. Like to me, that's what gets me motivated about the hobby. And I think there's a lot more of those stories that don't at lower price points that probably don't get told, but we have the data and the information on this sale. So I wanted to spend some time on this program to talk a little bit about it. Well, I mean, fifth ounce sports cards is, you know, one of the hobby's best kept secrets. He has an ungodly collection, but he will gladly sell you a $300 card or help you find it if you need it. And like when it comes to football, he's so resourceful and uh, has, has such a, a refined taste that, you know, just kind of, there's, there's so much to learn from following him collecting and following the moves that he makes. He, I have done a few deals with him where he sold me a few low end cards that I needed for, for collecting, you know, different stuff. And it was football and he was just complete class uh, top to bottom to deal with them. And when it comes to the, the Jerry Rice PMG green, you know, in anticipation of this episode, I was thinking about two worlds and I don't know which world I prefer because with the PMG greens in football, there's 15, which means the there's 150% as many as there are in basketball. Basketball has 10 greens. Football has 15. Basketball has 90 reds. Football has 135. So football, and this this is hashtag few understand this, that <laughs> when there's 50% more of football and they are still selling, you know, a Jerry Rice going for 150 grand, you know, but imagine if there was only 10. But so I but I so I started thinking if there are 15 PMG green football cards for each player in the set, would it be better if all 15 are living in collections somewhere and that even with $150,000 sale, the collectors, you know, that we're not going to see another one come to market, you know, is that the better world or do we like the world better where there's a few of these PMG greens that ever actually got pulled, but that, you know, because metal universe was not, you know, the, the knock your socks off product of the nineties of the late nineties, it was, the reception was lukewarm. Is it more the case that, hey, a lot of this product never got opened? There's maybe five or six Jerry Rice PMG greens that ever made it into circulation. Most of this product got discarded, and maybe there's one or two 
sitting in sealed boxes somewhere that are still available? Like which world do we like better? The world where all 15 are with collectors and they're never coming out or the world where the true circulation, the true print run is maybe more like six to eight that actually survive. And that, you know, there's, but maybe we will see one or two come out and a new market gets made. Do you have a world that you like better between those two worlds? I kind of like the thought that there are some that exist that we don't know about. It's easier to say when it's something you're not going to buy or collect. Now, if I flip the table and it's a, a guy I collect, maybe my thoughts are a little bit different on that. But I like the I like the unknown a little bit more than the uh, these fifteen are locked away in collections and the, the, they'll never leave. Uh, I think that's that's my take on it. What what about you? Yeah, I don't know. I'm torn. I'm definitely torn. You know, one of the great like mythologies about '90s Jordan cards and that '90s Jordan collectors really subscribe to is that even when you have a card like the high voltage 500 parallel which is serial number to 500, that the true circulation is maybe 100 mm. to 150. And then, or, and then you have cards like, you know, the Ruby's parallels from 97, 98. You have, you have a subset and a base and they're numbered to 50, but maybe the true available supply that made it to touch fresh air is like 30. Mm-hmm. You know, so this is like a really... Uh, a, a highly subscribed to philosophy about 90s cards is that especially the super rare stuff, serial numbered stuff, like they didn't make it to circulation the way cards make it to circulation today. So like if you've got, you know, a prism gold out of 10, odds are good that um, an overwhelming majority, a super majority of the product is going to get opened and 70, 80, 90% of the prism golds of a given player are going to make it to the market or they are going to end up in a collection. There's there, and maybe 10% or so are sitting in packs and boxes somewhere. But 90s collectors and the view about 90s product is that it's not like that at all. Like the a, a 90s card numbered to 50 is the equivalent of a modern card numbered to 10 based on the amount that actually made it out of packs and into collections and that survived the last 25 years and didn't get thrown away in a binder, you know, and so on and so forth. Well, there's, I mean, you're, you can just, let's call the elephant in the room and it's, there's so much controversy around this topic, but there was not breaking in the nineties and we, I mean, shit, a new product is released and it's like, you just have to wait moments and you start seeing these cards on eBay. You start seeing, breakers pull them and i think um there's something special about that it can be annoying to some people who want to get that card right out of the gates and have to pay a premium but i think that instance if you're on team like get these circulated they they don't get circulated without without breaking going down yeah well i think the newest football prism i mean I know that Justin Fields' Prism Black one of one came out. The Trevor Lawrence Prism Black one of one came out. I think the Prism Black finite of all the key players came out for just from breaking. And think about that craze that happened over the flawless triple logo man LeBron. That could have never happened in the 90s. That card may have never gotten pulled. And if it did get pulled, 
you know, it was going into a collection somewhere and maybe, you know, Beckett magazine would do a super collector feature on the card or something like that. Or, you know, maybe the local card shop owner would get a call and the guy would say, Hey, I hit this card. Isn't this cool? And that would be it. But now, you know, the biggest cards from the highest end products are getting pulled on camera on YouTube or on an online marketplace every, you know, week. And we see about it and we hear about it and we know and that these cars exist and that they're out there. And it just was not like that in the nineties. You just had no way of knowing if these cards even existed, if they, and if they ever came out, where did they end up? So it's, it's a very different world right now, uh, just in terms of our exposure to the best cards. And I, and I think that's why part of the reason why, uh, people are so much more knowledgeable about the hierarchies of cards for ultra modern than they are about previous eras is because breakers are making content in effect. It's, it's marketing material for their service, but it also doubles as educational content, teaching people what cards are getting people the most excited and what cards are at the top of the hobby hierarchy for these different sports and products. I love it. Before we get off of this completely, uh, I, this is going to be like, I hope we're getting nerdy for you out there, uh, <laughs> loyal listeners. This is going to be really nerdy as I'm thinking about this. But one thing I didn't even mention, and I don't think it even matters, but even because it probably doesn't matter, I think it makes for a cool like subtopic of this. The Jerry Rice Green PMG, 15 copies. This one so happened to be a PSA 6. Okay. No one gives a shit that it's a six and no one's talking about the, the grade. I didn't even bring it up when mentioning this card, but it's in a PSA holder that's graded six. How cool is that? Like how, like so much is about the grade PSA 10, gem mint, but like you get down these paths and a bunch of these turns that eventually happen with a bunch of these cards where that if you can possess it, the grade isn't the story of the card. The grade hardly matters. And I think there is these moments with with these cards, and to me, that that like shows the true power of and the strength of of a card when you're not even talking about the grade. Maybe I know PMGs historically don't grade well because of all of these things that have been regurgitated on every podcast like this over and over again. But like, maybe talk a little bit about that. We're not even talking about the grading. Like, what does that say about the significance of this card? Yeah, well, you know, great points there, and. Grading, we would be remiss to not acknowledge that half of the, the job that grading provides is giving an objective technical assessment of condition, which is represented by the numerical grade. But the other half of grading is authentication. And that's very important, the older the card is, especially. So and when you're talking about a Jerry Rice from 1997, you know, we're talking about 25-year-old card. So to have it authenticated by PSA, regardless of the grade, is a big deal, a big vote of confidence in that card that matters a lot. But I, you know, to me, it's just interesting how great, and I'm not sure if it makes complete sense how great matters in some instances and it doesn't in others. You know, a Jerry Rice PMG Green PSA 6 is a good grade, even though there is the possibility that there's higher grades that exist out there or could potentially exist because there's theoretically 14 other copies, but, you know, the Trevor Lawrence Prism Black Finite got a PSA 6, and that felt demoralizing <laughs> to see that that card got that great. But there's only one. There's only one. You know, so it's, 
So it really should matter far less in the case of the Lawrence. But I guess the Lawrence is being compared to other Prison Black Finite one of ones. Mm. You know, so there's that aspect to it. And the and the expectation setting that you referred to is a big deal as well. Like the expectation is that a modern prism card should do much better than a 25-year-old uh, you know, foil metal universe card. You know, on, in a certain sense, you, I, you know, you want to aspire. I, as a collector, I want to aspire to own cards for which the grade doesn't matter. That's almost like a way to measure the desirability of a card. Is that, you know, I, I want the cards that hey, it's great if it gets a ten, but if it doesn't, it's not a deal breaker by any stretch. I want to touch on like as the spectator of this sale, like when I saw this sale, it energized me in a way that. Uh, most auction of results or recaps of the last six months have haven't because as I mentioned, most of them just kind of say the same thing over and over again. But I don't know, like what you, I got energy from this, not to say like I need to go set out and find the Marvin Harrison green PMG, which one was uh, recently up for auction, like, I don't know, six months ago. And I should have fucking bid on it. I'm like pissed at myself. <laughs> now that I been, not because of the result of this, but I'm like, like that's a damn cool card. Um, but it just energized me in a way and showed to me that there's like a lot of really cool collecting and people buying cards because they want the cards because they're curating something special. So I don't know, like in this climate, in this market, like what is a like a sale like that? Do you think what do you think that does for like someone who's setting out every day like we do to go buy new cards or someone who maybe has cards available to put those cards up and sell those cards. Like what, what's your kind of perspective on that? Yeah. I'm the same as you that sales like that energize me. I think that's, that's the right word is that seeing something, you know, unprecedented, special, unexpected happen and see to see it put a light on something that actually had been brewing quietly for a period of time, which is the eruption in popularity of 90s football and baseball and you know but the in in particular here rare football people have made the case that jerry rice is the greatest football player of all time they've made the case he's the greatest wide receiver of all time so it's just it's really nice to see a player with his resume with his place in the history of the sport of football to set a price like that and you know the price is also energizing because it teaches us something about the different eras of collecting and how we as collectors solve for our need for scratching certain collector itches like rarity, aesthetics, and so forth. So that 150K Jerry Rice sale was the highest Jerry Rice sale ever. It, it trumped uh, PSA 10 copies of his rookie which had previously sold for, I think, low, low hundred thousands in, in that range. And, you know, to me, that's such a, such an instructive piece of information because, you know, here you have like an 11th year Jerry Rice card selling for more than a PSA 10 copy of his rookie because collectors of the 90s era and of the 80s junk wax era have to battle with different, you know, card factors than people who collect 50s and 60s, who, you know, if you're looking for, you know, the best Mickey Mantle rookie card, 
to take a very obvious example, the 52 tops, it's a pop three. You know, there's a PSA 10 and it's a pop three. And there you have everything encapsulated that you want. You've got, there's only three of them. It's PSA 10, great, the best possible technical condition grade that PSA can give. And that, that makes for a nice, neat pyramid or hierarchy where you just have the three at the top and you've got the six nines below it and so on and so forth. Well, in football, you know, these these 80s goats, the Joe Montanas, the Jerry Rices, and so forth, they have PSA 10 populations, 40, 50, 60, you know, or more for their rookie cards. So you don't have that pyramid of just, oh, there's just three Jerry Rice PSA 10 rookies that that form the top, the, the, the upper crust of the Jerry Rice card landscape. But instead, you have the 90s grails, which, you know, Jerry Rice PMG Green that was the first time a Jerry Rice PMG Green has ever sold publicly, or at least going back to 2004. That was the first time one had ever sold publicly. That is, that is a market dynamic. That's a factor that, that really excites and energizes a collector, knowing that here is the way to you know, fulfill the Jerry Rice collecting urge is hey his rookie card is amazing it's great but it is an amazing card you know Jerry Rice himself commented on that rookie card when it started hitting crazy price like there's just a really cool history to that card but there's something special and different about using the 97 PMG green Jerry Rice to be the zenith the to be at the apex of the Jerry Rice card collecting world and then you start saying well what happens if his 9899 I don't I, you know, I don't know if Jerry Rice has a gem masters one of one from a, from the subsequent year PMGs, but like, what, what, what about that card? You know, you start thinking like in, on these levels now, and it has to be observed that nineties cards and the design techniques and the technology that was being used, it was so remarkable And what arena design, just those two people, Earl and Gene, what they did to usher in. A, an entire new era of card design and in aesthetics and like how the PMG encapsulates all that and how, you know, the PMG marks the advents of the serial number, which was the safeguard against overproduction in the 89 upper deck grippy scandal. And just sort of there's, you know, that that's why it energizes me just because it, it, it's a tree that has all these different branches to it that are really fun to think about. So you said that this was the first sale since 2004 of this card publicly, which I think uh, excites, energizes. We've been talking about it, shared a lot uh, about what that, how that makes us feel. Now the opposition of this would be these cards that we see that are regularly listed in every auction over and over again, where I led, the more I see it, the more it bores me. And I know these cards are considered iconic to our hobby and are significant in a way. But when you're constantly seeing not only them being transacted, but then the commentary from the community on top of it, people who are owning these cards, who are defending people who saying these cards aren't as good. It's just this bickering back and forth. Like for me personally, like I, it loses some luster um, in a way. So I, I just love like your take on should, because these cards, there's a lot of these cards and because the hobby considers them iconic, should we see them available 
in every auction on a monthly basis, several copies. Um, is that a good thing? Is that a bad thing? Like anything you want to get into there? Yeah. Uh, hmm. I'm not sure if it's good or it's bad. It just, uh, suppose it is what it is. You know, it, it's not a perfect analogy, but it's almost like some people would like to go to a big university and be in a class with 300 people and experience things amongst a big group and be and you know be a part of that group and then there's other people who go to highly specific vocational colleges that have graduating classes of 30 people and then there's some people go to smaller private schools like there's just such a range and it's not this is not a perfect analogy but you know maybe there's there's some you know there's some overlap there between like hey i want to go to a college that has 50,000 students and live that life i want to collect cards that lots of other people are collecting too. I take a comfort in that. There's security to me in that. There's a, I like having cards in common with these people, you know, and there's, there's something that really appeals to people about that. And then there's others who just say, Hey, that's cool. But you know, my personal taste, the thing that drives collecting to me is that I want the unobtainable stuff. You know, it's about the chase for me. It's about you know, my reach exceeding my grasp and seeing how far I can push things. And, you know, and, they, and the hobby is, is definitely large enough for both to coexist. So it's good, you know, in the sense that there's plenty of things to recommend collecting in that lane too. And we get a constant pulse on the market. So like the Card Lighter 50 relies heavily on cards like the 86 Fleer Jordan to give a projection of how this market is trending. Uh, but, you know, but we don't necessarily know what exactly the trend is teaching us. So like if the 86 Fleer Jordan in lower grades doubles in price is what is it teaching us? You know, is it teaching us that, Hey, there's, there's a bunch of new people who just came into the hobby. Is it teaching us that there's just uh, inflation and price inflation going on prices are going up again? It, you know, it's just it. The data stands alone from the takeaway, which is something that's tough to disentangle sometimes, because we want to be able to take a clear-cut story away from data, but it's not always there. So, you know, I'm I'm not prepared to say good or bad. Just different. It's just a way of collecting is different. So then, reporting on CL50, good example, good index with these iconic cards that. We know and love, we see, we recognize. When people talk about the performance of the hobby, right now it's doom and gloom, sky is falling. My guess, and I haven't looked in in a while, but just uh, maybe a lot of these cards that are readily available are falling in price, um, mm -hmm. as opposed to this Jerry Rice card, which I would bet is not a part of the CL50 because hasn't been transacted on, didn't meet the <laughs> quality. Well, that sale is really damn significant to football card collectors to Jerry Rice collectors. So like, what's the give and take here? Like sky is falling. Like these cards that are popular are going down, but then you have all these outliers of cards that are just coming to mind. Like, how do we communicate on this? Like, how are we supposed to be reporting on like the health and the performance of the hobby when you've got all of these different segments doing different things? Yeah, it's difficult. And, uh, you know, like many things that take on a public dimension and that involve influencers, and tastemakers, uh, you know, people will take data or take information or take stories and use it so, and selectively cherry pick it and use it to advance their own particular agenda. 
Now, one of the things to go to card later indexes for a second, one of the things that was really tricking us in terms of how do we make sure we're telling the full hobby story when there's a lot of blood red in the indexes month over month for most of this year. And, and it's, it's just so funny too, because it's, it's easy to forget that like Q1 of this year was for many cards, the highest they'd ever been. And that's, that's just six, eight months ago. And it just feels like a lifetime ago. And it, it's also interesting to note that cyclically since the pandemic, Q1 has been a huge quarter for prices. They, in most instances, they surpass Q1. Of, so I'll be really interested to see what 2023 Q1 looks like. But, you know, we, we said, how can, how can we be sure? Because there, there has been a palpable shift, I think, amongst at least some decent, a decent chunk of the hobby away, not, not just, it's not that the hobby has shrunk. You know, we, we look at overall sales metrics from all the different online marketplaces that we track. And from January until now, the number plus or minus $25 million or so is 200 million. So like January, you might see 200 million in aggregate sales. And then, you know, February, you might see 225. And then March, you might see 180. And then April, you might see 240. And I think like August, if I if memory serves, August or September was the highest aggregate sales month that we'd ever seen. So, and, and it's like, and the average item price was up, even though prices on the most visible, visible cards are down. So like, how do you reconcile that? Uh, the hobby sky is falling, but the amount of money being spent in the hobby in online marketplaces is, is stable and or ticking up and the average price per item spent is up too. So we, one small, and we're working on telling these aggregate data stories too. Like, I feel like we need to be putting that information in front of people too. We'll work on ways to, to do that in the app. But uh, an, another way that we did it was we invented something called the outlier index. And so all the outlier indexes is every card that didn't qualify for a different index. So like card ladders, all these traditional indexes, you have your baseball index, your basketball index, your CL50, you know, you've got your hockey index, your racing index, your MMA index, your entertainment cards index. But there's always been two caveats for cards to be included in the index. Number one is that the card must have sold at least once in the last six months. And number two, the card must have sold twice in the last year. And that was important because if you don't do that, then you have a card that sold 10 years ago and today, and the index is flat and it just jumps up. And so, you know, it's that's tough because the methodological assumption of the index is that the price is stable until it records a new data point, right? So to make the indexes, you know, uh, reflect cards that transact with at least a modicum of frequency, you know, we put those two restrictions in place. Well, among the 35,000 cards that have verified sales histories and card ladder, 9,280 of them don't qualify for any index. So in other words, 9,280 of them do not meet the requirement that they sold at least once in the, sa- once in the last six months and twice in the last year. So what do you do with those 9,000 cards? Well, let's just throw them into an index and see what that index looks like. And guess what? That index in its history of 18 plus years 
has never gone down. So there's a story <laughs> yeah. of the hobby. There's a totally different story of the hobby. You can go look at that liar index. You can see all 9,000 cards that are in it. But if you make an index that's of cards that don't sell with the frequency of at least twice in the last year and at least once in the last six months, if you make an index of those cards, that index has never gone down. Now, if that little nugget doesn't give collectors who are getting paychecks and spending an absurd amount of that paycheck on sports cards that make them feel something and are rare and scarce, and they're out there hunting. If that doesn't give give you some sort of confidence, I don't know what will. Um, man, there's a lot we covered. This was a, one of my favorite conversations, Chris. Maybe before I let you get out of here, are there any cards? We talked so much about the Jerry Rice, but are there any other cards that you've been tracking or monitoring or sales that might have flown under the radar that you found significant or worthy of note as you've been just tracking cards every night for, you know, since you've been doing it? Recently, yeah, I guess. There's a couple quick headline stories, I think, to just briefly touch on a few bullet points. The Aaron Judge market had an unprecedented rise in price over the course of his historic season. So, you know, measuring the rate of growth of the Aaron Judge index relative to baseball cards as a whole, you know, his his index, his cards nearly tripled whereas baseball was only up 10% over that same time span. And if you control for the growth of the sector as a whole, for players like Luca's second year, which was a breakout year, or Josh Allen's fourth year, which was his breakout year, Mahomes' MVP season, which was his breakout year, John Morant last year. You know, if you look at these guys, huge hobby names, hobby headlines, Aaron Judge's market relative to or controlling for the growth of the sports was the single biggest explosion in price in a player's market over the course of a breakout season. More than Luka, more than Mahomes, more than Moran, more than Josh Allen. That's how special of a season uh, Aaron Judge had, and it, which is really cool because you know it's nowhere we're nowhere near his rookie year, and he did something you know that's that's special. But you know the 62 home run thing is really special. But like. You know, it's it's not unfathomable to think of baseball players doing really special things like that. You know, maybe it's not 62 home runs, and you know he almost hit for the triple crown, but he didn't. I guess the what the point that I'm getting at is that Aaron Judge had a special season, but players can have special seasons. Otani, you know, has special seasons with a lot of frequency. I mean, I guess it it took a it took him being a Yankee. It took him having hitting for 62. It took the Yankees, you know, looking like they were going to make more noise in playoffs than they ultimately did. But like, there's there's a lot of reason for optimism that players can break have breakout hobby seasons, just like the way that Aaron Judge did. I guess is the point that I'm trying to get at. Some other things we're touching on is that from that same auction that saw the Jerry Rice PMG Green sell for the highest price for any Jerry Rice card, uh, a Ken Griffey Jr. card sold for the highest price that any Ken Griffey Jr. card has ever sold for. Same goes for Carl Anthony Towns. Same goes for Jalen Hurts, who Jalen Hurts is also a really special football story that like it's a little too early in the season. Uh, you know, they're 7-0. and There's a lot to be written. Expectations are really starting to build. But I look forward to reviewing and telling the Jalen Hurts story at the end of the season and seeing how it stacks up to the Aaron Judge story. And then also Mike Trout, 
had his uh, second highest selling card of all time in all in that same auction, you know, the, the same auction that it was the subject of much doom and gloom per the auction recap Instagram story posts, the same auction that was telling you, you know, uh, I, you know, there's, here's, here's a final parting thought. There's a lot of content in the hobby that has, doesn't even have a conception of maybe people just want to own their cards mm-hmm. and there, this isn't a game of buy low and sell high constantly over and over. And maybe, you know, maybe there's just a place for, and a voice uh, to be given to the point of view that like, yeah, maybe Jalen hurts or, you know, or, uh, Trevor Lawrence, you know, maybe, maybe it's a, a good time to buy Trevor Lawrence, but I just don't want to collect Trevor Lawrence. And, you know, maybe it's a good time to sell somebody who's at the peak, but I maybe I just like collecting that player and I'm and I just want to own their cards. And I don't, you know, I it's almost like it's, it's almost like collectors are given guilt trips for owning cards. <laughs> it's like, man, we're doing it wrong. That's that's never been the engine of hobby enthusiasm in hobby optimism. And that's never been the cornerstone of, of what makes this hobby special. And it's, it's going to, you know, forge long-term collectors and long-term market prosperity is making people feel bad for owning cards of stuff that's doing well. So to me, it's, it's more about, it's true that like, Hey, there, there's a math equation that says if you sell high and you buy low, you're going to make a lot of money. And then if you make a lot of money, you can use it to buy even better cards. And that's true. But the other side of the coin is that, hey, there's a lot of us in this hobby who just really like take a pride of ownership in the cards that we have. We don't want to feel bad or be made to feel bad for continuing to own our cards. And we're just out here building collections. You know, that's all we're trying to do. So that's anyway. a hell of a punctuation point on a great conversation. Okay. Yes, I love it. Uh, you can obviously, uh, if you're not already, check out Card Ladder. What are you doing if you're not? Um, you can also listen to more of these fun, interesting takes and also some weird stuff that gets filtered in through the questioning on the crossover uh, every Friday night uh, with uh, his counterpart, Josh Johnson, who's been on here plenty of times. Chris, this is a good one, man. Appreciate you coming on and sharing your perspective. There will be another chance to do it soon. You know that. Thanks for having me, bud. Do I still hold the record, by the way? Uh, I think you've got the right. Re- you're you're on the Mount Rushmore of Stacking Slabs podcast guests. George- right, I think you're it. on the George Washington spot, but I'll need to do some bit data digging and analysis, but I'll put you there for now since you're the guest right. right here. Sounds good. Thanks, man. Always enjoy my conversations with Chris. We always have something to talk about and we always go long. I always pull the damn plug. Hopefully you enjoyed that conversation. Gives you some perspective of what's really going on in the hobby or at least what's going on with the collecting community. You take care of yourself. Take care of others around you. We'll be back. More Stagging Slabs podcast next week. 